All right, welcome everybody uh, to this edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And in true to form fashion, uh, this one will be Anything But Typical. And I cannot wait for you to hear and hear the story and the heartbeat of Colin Pinckney. Um, we are going to hear uh, an entrepreneurial journey of a different sort, um, but that has tremendous impact and relevance in today and tomorrow and the future. So um, Colin, before we get into a little bit more about you, I wanna get into your heartbeat. And so here's the scenario. You are walking into the Hornets locker room as you have many times before and you hear a couple players and they are talking about you but they don't realize you've just walked into the room and they're talking about you. What is it that you would love to hear them say about you? Well, if I'm if I speak out of my um, little boy's room, I'd say uh, I'd want them to say, "Man, he he's as good as we are. <laughs> <laughs> he can play." Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think I, I've got I, I like as a little boy growing up, I always dreamed about making it big in sports, and I always. I always wrote the story where I shot the winning shot or hit the home run or scored the touchdown. And being around these athletes, you, you get inspired all over again. The, most of these guys are young enough to be my sons. And so when I'm around them, it, it, it makes me nostalgic. It makes me think about my youthfulness. Um, and, you know, if they were to say something about me outside of the sports, you know, about how I've helped them become better men as dads and husbands well that that would really get me excited but i wouldn't mind him also saying he's a big basketball player too <laughs> we'll get a, a rudy scene going on where they're all tossing you their jerseys yeah man yeah every kid wants that right that's right that's right <laughs> well perfect so, so let's lay uh let's lay a little bit of your background out and then we'll jump right into the conversation so um, our guest today, Colin, uh, he's the executive director of the Harvest Center, which is a nonprofit tackling issues of homelessness here, uh, specifically in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. He is the chaplain of the Charlotte Hornets um, and was as the, uh, the Bobcats as well, previously named. Um, he's also the author of uh, Blueprints, Mentoring Designs for Young Black Males. And Colin has formed the Young Male Book Club at Olympic High School which uh, has impacted over 125 was the last number that I saw uh, people in men in young men in there and had a 100% graduation rate of the seniors in that program. That number is actually 350, man. 350, 350. good. So yeah. that number that I saw was obviously significantly farther you behind. You got in Ooh. early. You didn't get the whole story. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that that's incredible. So I want to start uh, with the origination of, of impacting your community because you've got volunteering and impacting uh, experience and, and situations really back in the, the mid nineties and probably even before that, but mid nineties was the earliest I could find. Where did that mindset originate for you? Um, I think it was a convergence of two things, right? I think like most people like myself who find themselves in a, in a powerful place of serving the community Surely it came from my own life experience. I knew leaving college, uh, going away to NC State, that I was coming from a broken family. I, was, I had no illusions. My family was messed up. 
and I had a sense that there was a calling for me somehow or another to do something about that. I didn't know what it was, uh, but in the 90s, as I was working for McDonald's, I saw the pathway. I saw the way to do that. Uh, I got involved in community, uh, on the community activation team with McDonald's. It was actually where I first met Michael Jordan. It was back in 1988. I, I, I used to serve in biscuits at his golf ball, go, uh, golf tournament. And, but it was seeing how, as a professional, I could go into the community and bring solutions to the issues that I had in my own family and inspire other people to do that and just find just find great value and, and energy from that is really those two things I would say in the late early early 90s it then catapulted me into this workflow. All right so we had a we had a quick technical difficulty as Colin's computer decided it wanted to restart on its own. Um, so we're back now and Colin I want to jump back in and and talk about um, being a leader and and being in the nonprofit space, what are some of the day-to-day uh, -day struggles and difficulties that that you're experiencing on the nonprofit side that a lot of uh, people in the private sector or profitable sector aren't necessarily experiencing or don't really know what's going on? What are some of those hurdles for you? You know, one of the things that come to mind, and I've, I've recognized this because I've been in both spaces, is that there is this underlying assumption that when you come to the nonprofit space, you don't necessarily come with, and I use the sports analogy, your A game. That it, you're good enough just to come with a bleeding heart and passion, right? You just care about what you care about. But what I can tell you is that if we don't have staff members, team members, even volunteers who show up with their A game in terms of their expertise, whether it's volunteering, helping doing some marketing or helping send out emails, you know, there tends to be a sort of a condescension where people think you don't have to give your best effort. Mm -hmm. and, and that necessarily has implications for how we, how we get our work done. And I, and I have for years have had to constantly, even when I'm interviewing candidates for positions, you know, I, have, I find myself having to kind of lift up their idea of what it would mean to be on staff at a nonprofit. It's about people. It's about people's abilities and skills being used for the greater good of the call of the mission. And, th and that's a day-to-day -day reality. Staff development, professional development of my staff, you know, and most people in the outside world would think nonprofits don't need that, right? You just care about the community. You care about homeless families, whatever. We need, we need staff development, professional development. If my staff stagnates and doesn't continue to grow in their professional skills, educational skills, and otherwise, then that necessarily impedes us achieving our mission. So in the nonprofit world, it's taken for granted, right? You're going to come and give me your best effort. You're going to bring your A game to the office every day. Um, but in a nonprofit, that's not always um, um, assumed. And so we have to, I spend a, I spend a lot of my time developing the people who feel called to do this work from a more compassionate heart and mindset. So I'm assuming that that higher standard for those employees also puts an additional pressure on them that a lot of them may not have known was going to be there at the beginning, right? Because if they go to that nonprofit space with, with the wrong mindset. So does that lead to a lot of turnover 
uh, with employees where you're constantly having to, to fill in gaps in your team? Or have you been yeah. able to kind of solve that? Well, I, I'd like to think I've done a pretty good job with that because I have leveraged my corporate skills in this space. I mean, yeah. I'd like to think the reason I'm successful is because I've learned a lot in the corporate world and those skills transfer into my work as a nonprofit leader. Um, but it does, you know, one of the other challenges with that though, is that we don't always necessarily, I think we're getting better now as nonprofits of understanding that if we want people to perform at the top level, then we have to incentivize them at that level as well. So a lot of times nonprofit salaries lag behind the corporate work and we're trying to we're trying to close that gap because we know that we have to call our people to a higher uh, high standards of performance, but we haven't always compensated them as well as the for-profit world. So that's that's sort of the tension that we constantly live in, and we do see turnover because of that. On average, for example, development directors in the nonprofit world, this is kind of like the, the the you know the going joke is that they're not going to last more than a year and a half because as soon as they find a space where they can raise money enough to get to the next level, then they're going to do it. So that's a challenge. You go through development directors a lot in this industry. And, um, but we need them performing at top. We need them to be as, as, as um, successful as a top sales person at Marriott hotels in terms of their financial goals and their financial impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, one of the correlations and it's interesting too, that you have been on the corporate world and you're you're a leader regardless which regardless of where we take you <laughs> and where you get and where you choose to go but one of the things that you on i want to go deeper on and that is you know simon sinek talks about the golden circle or your why right yeah your purpose yeah and, and you are very purpose driven missional driven guy and a leader yeah. and so the things that i've seen you do in the book club as a volunteer and trying to make mm -hmm. a difference with the hornets it's not been because of oh hey i get to hang around a bunch of basketball guys no that's never mm -hmm. been your heart um and same way with the harvest center which i think is doing probably the most in charlotte north carolina to deal with upward mobility and getting people back on a solid track and not just uh you know here's a meal or here's some money and good luck right. you know so let's talk about your purpose your mission what's that fire in your soul that is common across all of those things so i don't know if i've ever shared this with you gary but it has driven me for the past i'd say 25 years and it and again it starts with my own personal reality with this, but it, but even more so, it gets stoked when as when I go to the community and I see that I'm not the only one. Growing up, I thought I was the only black kid who didn't have a dad, and I grew up in a family with eight brothers and sisters. And yet, the sentiment for me was, I don't have a dad, and that meant something. And that was a very empty space, only to grow up and to find out that that was I was actually more normal than I was abnormal, right? But even in being normal, I realized there was something broken here, something deeply broken. And in that, that brokenness necessarily had implications for the community I lived in, for the, the schools that my kids go to, 
to the church that we attend, that brokenness is so pervasive mm. that for me, it came clear many years ago, uh, and it really is more of a prayer that I live out of, and that is a prayer that I could see, uh, and, and this is very specific, the book that I wrote is very specific to black males, um, is that, that, that my prayer is that I could see a, a more wholesome value of marriage and family restored in the black community. That's my why, because it's broke. You know, there, there is such a uh, gap for young black kids growing up in the community and police issues and all that notwithstanding. For me, I look in their homes and I see where, the, where there's such a, that where we catalyze this, this type of brokenness that we take out to our community. And, and, and rightfully so, our community sees a brokenness and they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. The average white guy does not know, um, he doesn't think he knows the depth of brokenness there is in a young black boy who has never known his dad and who's only known a lifestyle of survival and manipulation and grasping for things and finding, finding you know, manipulative ways to get the things that he or she, he needs. And that's the brokenness I'm going after. That's my why, because I, I believe, Gary uh, and Ben, that, that for all the issues we've got in our society, if we don't fix the brokenness inside of young black boys, particularly, we can, we can change laws, we can change policy, we can change uh, uh, socio socioeconomic realities, but if we don't fix the brokenness, that's inside of young black boys, it's just a matter of time before it self-destructs. Mm -hmm. It just is. And so for me, my target is inside the hearts of the family, the black family. And I, I'm blessed that I get to do that. And there are other men in this community who aren't black who care about that as well. And that's, that's what's so empowering for me, to find that I've got a brotherhood across socioeconomic racial lines that care about this thing too. They don't always know what to do, but they're willing to do it. I know that. And, and so I feel even more compelled to figure out what it is that needs to be fixed. And that's what I'm after. And that's why I wrote the book. I, I saw what goes on with young black boys inside of a broken family structure that creates a larger community brokenness. And I want to fix the boys. I want to fix what's inside of them. And, and the the concept with that, which I'm assuming is also why the the book club came around, also is you're you're meeting them where they are when they still have that opportunity to be able to grow as they become young men, and then people that are leading families. Is that correct? Like you wanna you wanna have that conversation. You wanna be meeting them prior to getting to the point where they're already heads of households. Ben, you, you nailed it, brother. And, 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 and the epiphany for me came many years ago when I, see, see I lived this. And I know, but I, I, I was always very timid about being outspoken about this reality because I wasn't sure that I knew how to fix it. But I knew what it was like to experience it. And, 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 and I had been fortunate that I'd been married, my wife and kids. And we were doing relatively well. I mean, if you looked at my kids and I, I it dawned on me one day, I said, you know, I got pretty good kids. <laughs> my kids are, I, I mean, I, 
and, and I look at the rest of the community, I thought, man, I wonder what I could do to help other people. And I, and, 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 and I had been waiting for years on the sidelines to get in the game. And then finally it, it dawned on me, I just got to get in. And so it is about getting in where I know that I've been able to be blessed and fortunate and successful and sharing that and, and, and pass that on. Because that's what helped me in my own life, in my own career, yeah. corporately. There was somebody who saw something in me and they sponsored me up to the next level. So I just started employing those things with the book club before you know it, we got 350 boys graduating high school on time who were most were on track not to. So, yeah, but it is about ultimately living fully into their highest, what I believe is their highest purpose in the earth, and that is to be um, healthy, loving fathers and confident husbands. And, and, and they're not going to get that by, in, it's not intuitive, right? It's not intuitive for black people. It's not intuitive for white people. It's a learning that has to happen. And I just, I, I, I quit giving myself an excuse to say, well, somebody's going to do it. And I said, no, not somebody's me and I'm going. So. You know, <clears throat> I don't know if you think of yourself as an entrepreneur or not, but that is so similar to everybody's entrepreneurial journey that I know that um, has done something great, which was, didn't necessarily start out and say, hmm, I think I'm going to go do this. They had, they had a fire. They had a purpose that was lit in their soul. They saw a need that nobody seemed to be dealing with, yeah. or at least in the direction that they felt like they could make a difference. And they took the leap and said, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so when you transitioned from corporate America into nonprofit world, there may have been some baby steps. There may have been even like with the book club there, you know, you may have been doing that while you had another job, but talk to us a little bit about even that, how you've made those moves, especially from corporate world to nonprofit world. Well, I, I do think of myself as an entrepreneur, Gary. I, I've got an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I've even tried my hand, and my wife and I, we've got some business things out there, but more in the sense of what you're talking about, to bring that to bear in a nonprofit setting is still very true for me, right? Yeah. Um, and, but, and with that entrepreneurial spirit is a lot of trial and error, right? You know, one of the things I think is a deficit of many nonprofits is that they don't have a research and development budget. I mean, nonprofits live in the tyranny that whatever we do has got to work. And if it don't work, the donors aren't going to give you any more money. If you fail in any way, we're living in the constant threat that these donors out here who are entrepreneurs themselves don't have that same filter when they look at the work of nonprofit. And so... You're always living that, uh, you've always got that, that sort of shadow over you, man, we can't even fail in the little things because I'm always threatened by the idea that my income streams or other resources will go away. But in the, in the, in the entrepreneurial world, you know that you need trial and error. Research and development requires failure. And we don't give ourselves permission to do that in a nonprofit like I wish we would. And I've always asked my board every year, I said, one day, 
I'm going to get bold enough. I'm going to put a line item in here that says research and development. <laughs> and it will only be about failure. Because if we fail forward, if we fail and work, then we're getting somewhere. And, and, and here's the other thing. Failure also is the most authentic way, I believe, to say that we need help. I mean, the reason I'm sitting in Nashville today is because even though our program's going well at the Harvest Center, I'm not crazy enough to think we've got all the good ideas. They're, I believe they're pollinated. You know, a great saying a friend of mine always says is pink. Remember this, success leaves footprints. So I'm out here chasing feet for it, man. I'm going to go to Atlanta in a couple of weeks, and there's a group down there that's doing some amazing things. And in the nonprofit world, again, we have this entrepreneurial spirit, but oftentimes we feel crippled because, you know, donors and, and board members have a way of making you feel like you can't make mistakes. And even though, and we do, and, I, and, and we make mistakes, but mistakes are always intentional tools toward a greater goal. We're getting closer. Every mistake we make, every failure gets us closer to our, our reality, that we're going to solve this issue once and for all. So I am an entrepreneur in, in heart. I am. And I'm not afraid to fail. Uh, at the, in the Harvest Center, we've had we, we've tried some things that we won't do again. <laughs> but, right? <laughs> um, but, I mean, even the book club with the boys, which was you know, it was sort of nonprofit. I was, it was really a volunteer role for me. I learned over the years and we tweaked that thing. And every year I'd go back and I'd realize, you know what? I want to add some structure to it. I mean, if these boys are listening to me with no structure, imagine if I put together some structure. And then I started reading books that were on a higher level than they were reading that I wanted them to read. And I realized that that's the only way I could call them to something greater is they had to read it first. Mm. They had to see it first. Right. We can't expect them to achieve at that level if they don't they don't have the awareness that it's even real. So, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, Gary. I just happen to be in the nonprofit world, brother. <laughs> That's a pretty I, good recipe, though. I love it. Yep. Yeah. So you're, and, you're leading us into into the Harvest Center a little bit. So so let's back up and give you a moment to be able to describe to the listeners and viewers of what the Harvest Center is and, and what the mission behind it is. And then we can go from there. Yeah. Well, uh, in short, the Harvest Center is a it is a faith based transitional housing program that seeks to break the cycle of non chronic homelessness in the lives of individual men, women and families with children. Uh, and we just realized the latter part of that the last couple of years when we acquired this new property. Um, for years, we had been the trial and error piece of how can we do this better. Right. And we came to the conclusion that if we could have a one campus model, uh, our tagline is creating community, transforming lives. In the past, creating community meant that we were sort of a conduit between different kinds of people, the wealthy and the poor, the, the white and the black, the differences. And we became sort of a builder of community in that. But now, uh, ultimately, what we're realizing, our intention has always been to to, to provide the brick and mortar structures that allow people to live inside of that community to realize their own dreams of a fully independent living, uh, free from any type of entitlement programs where they're living on their own, they're providing for their family and their kids. Um, and again, that, that has been sort of not as much trial and error, but evolution. 
in that, that we've kind of fully evolved into understanding that our right position is to create the apparatus, the physical properties of a community in which individuals who want to live better can thrive. And that's what we're doing now. We're literally building a community. We've, we've got apartments, uh, we've got uh, gymnasium facilities. We've, we're, we're the only healthcare uh, nonprofit agency I know of in town that has a full fitness facility on the property for our, our, our clients to use. And they're working, not only they're working on their financial health, their, their, their employment health and their careers, they're also working on their mind, body and soul so that they are more fully uh, well people when they go to uh, live, to, to go back into the community and live as productive citizens. Uh, you know, and much of the work, unfortunately, in my view, in the, in the community is really entitlement minded. Just give them things that they don't have materially and that will somehow evolve into they'll be better citizens. Mm-hmm. And we know that's not the truth. And it's but and here's but the reality is that the work we do is intensive and it's hard, and it takes a brave, courageous soul to think that you can enter into the life of someone who's been sleeping in their car for the past years and washing their kids up in the sinks at the local quick stop, and think that you can help them create a new reality for their life. It's intensive, it's hard work, but it's also very fulfilling work. So, I was at your at the Harvest Center campus a year ago, August, and it was a hot and muggy day of Charlotte. <laughs> but it was a beautiful day because I got to see firsthand what you're doing, and, and almost a year's transpired since then. But you had just launched the Passport Program. Yes. Talk about the Passport Program because it's really revolutionary, and that's another entrepreneurial. Light bulb that went off and that is becoming a reality. Well, you know, Gary, what's so amazing to me is for all the people that agencies are in this work of, of helping homeless people move out of that, that reality, when I talk about the passport, everybody agrees, oh my gosh, that's what we need. And yet we still tend to lag behind in terms of resources. But the passport is, is simply that it is a passport that will allow a, an individual or family to move into our program uh, with the mindset that this is not their final destination, that they're going to move to places that they have an intention and internal sort of drive that they want to go places in their life. They want their kids to do well in school. They want their, to grow in their career. And that's not their present reality. That's a future destination. So the passport program says we want to um, to help transport you to that future destination. And what that provides first is supportive housing so that within a year and a half, they are fully equipped, um, encouraged, inspired, mind, body, and spirit to reach that final destination, which is not the Harvest Center. You know, we're not a shelter. Uh, we're not a, um, a permanent housing facility. We are transitional. We are that we're that place where people find themselves where they need just a little bit of help. It's 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 the story of the Good Samaritan, and I know whether you're a Bible thumper or not, everybody has a sense of what the Good Samaritan story is about. You find somebody who's down and out on the side of the road of life, and you stop 
and you lift that person and you serve that person their holistically and you take them to a better place where they can be healed and restored with the understanding that you won't they won't remain in the condition in which you found them that their lives will move forward and that's what the transformation program the passport is all about it's moving people's lives forward to break these historical cycles of homelessness poverty and and dependency so it's an 18 month program they go through various levels of training and learning and breaking of old habits and adopting new habits whether it be how to run a budget how to take care of a a, a, a two-bedroom apartment uh, that's right etc and even so talk us talk to us a little bit more about some of those elements of the program well one of the things we do gary that we again this is the evolution is that if we really want to call out this level of empowerment to people then we first have to demonstrate what that looks like we have to put them in that place they have to start with this is what covey says begin with the end in mind right so when what so we're very intentional in our living spaces that they reflect the highest levels of dignity and care we don't take any used furniture we don't put any used apparatus in our apartments when our families and individuals move in they move into fully brand new, brand new furnished apartment that's the first step they've got to see that they've got to see what transformation looks like before they even get to that destination so it starts with the physical plan we make sure that our campus, our facilities, their apartments, everything would, you know, looks like what they would want. And they start there. And then we say, okay, see, if you want this and we want this for you, here's how we, we, we begin to work backwards. And what is it going to take for you to be able to not only move into a space like that, but to sustain in a place like that? So we got to talk about your finances. But we don't just talk about finances. We talk about how you think about money, power authority. We talk about all the things that we all know have implications for how we handle our money, right? How we see money. Is money power? Is money pleasure? You know, if, and we help people reframe their thinking through the, in that way. Um, and it's with everything we do. Uh, when we engage with the children, it's the highest level of care, dignity, and grace so that the parents can even see. One of, one of the most compelling testimonies that I've heard in the past three years in our new campus is a, is a mother who said to me who had been in prison for home drug addictions. She had suffered from uh, physical sexual abuse at the hands of some folks in her family and, and, and her two sons had experienced the same. And she was living this generational cycle of decay. And after a year in our program, she says, the Harvest Center has made me believe finally that there are people out there who care about your kids who don't want to hurt them. Wow. And that to me speaks volumes about what the Harvard Center, we're not here to hurt people. We're here to fix and heal and restore the brokenness. And people who come to us with these needs, they know if you care. You know, one of my mentors in this work many years ago, a gentleman by the name of Pastor Eric Chisholm always said to me, uh, Colin, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So that's where we start. We start loving people first. We don't put requirements on them until we've shown them, shown them first that we love them. And that's in everything that we do. So, so yeah. you can easily see the 
passion that you have behind this vision of yours, right? Like you're, it's beating with your heart. It's one and the same. Let's talk about leadership a little bit inside nonprofit. How do you approach leading in the nonprofit space to get the people working for, or volunteering for the Harvest Center to be able to pour in that, that similar type level of passion to where they're truly buying into the vision? Yeah. Again, I'm going to borrow another quote from a person who inspired me, and it really has informed my leadership over the years. Uh, When I worked for McDonald's while I was in college, uh, I got the chance to meet Ray Kroc once, and I was mesmerized by Ray Kroc because I knew his story. And I'd read his book, and he had this saying, and every manager in the McDonald's restaurant knew this about Ray Kroc. He said, if you aren't taking care of the customer, then you better be taking care of somebody who is. And that framed my whole reference for leadership, whether I was at the, 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 the store level or the corporate level and leading people, it was about taking care of people who are taking care of people. Mm-hmm. And so when I, made, when, I, when I was fortunate to move up where I'm not you know, on the, the front lines of the work that we do, but I'm removed from it, I see my, my highest work and value is to take care of the people who are taking care of the people. So, and, and, and the, the way I do that is to be authentic. I have to live this out. I have to say, if I want my staff to be concerned about their own health and well-being, then I got to be concerned about my own. And I model that. Uh, you know, Gary knows this, I think, but, you know, I've got heart disease and I've known it since 2004. Um, it's what led me to move fully into the nonprofit work. Um, and I say I've got two types of heart disease. I've got a physical heart disease, and I've also got a heart disease of compassion. Uh, and and so I've had to take care of my- Oh, Colin, you muted. Colin, wait, you, uh, there you go. You're unmuted, you can go again. I'm sorry, yeah, my- that in taking care of people, I first have to take care of myself. So to be physically, emotionally, spiritually um, balanced, well, and, 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 and it's not a matter of perfection, it's a matter of chasing a goal, that I want to be well in these things. And so I live that out in front of my staff. Uh, and that's how I, one of the ways I see myself taking care of them is by letting them see me taking care of myself so it's okay if you're not feeling well you got to go take care of yourself you got to take care of your family your kids so my leadership model has always been take care of the people who are taking care of people i mean i got to do the numbers and all the other jump but for me leadership is about people um maxwell says it i agree with it everything rises and falls on leadership and to me that everything is about people yeah so and part of um part of leadership that I, I saw while doing research for today's conversation was creating culture and environment, right? So in, in the foreword to your book, Blueprints, uh, it's from a young man that was part of the book club. Yes. And in there, he wrote that you were able to create uh, a place where he could voice his opinion on certain issues that were constantly occurring in our society. Yes. So how have you been able to cultivate that type of environment, especially with, with young men that haven't felt that comfort before being able to openly have a conversation 
how do you cultivate that environment that leads to those productive conversations? You have to listen. It starts by listening. You know, you got, you know, as older men, we have, we have a bad habit of not, of kind of owning the room and sucking the air out of the room when we show up and whatever the conversation is, whether or not it's like, who's the greatest basketball player ever, right? I could prove to you it's Michael Jordan. This generation never saw Michael Jordan play and they're convinced it's LeBron James. And so rather than try and own and win the argument, I said, tell me, tell me, make the case. And you just got to listen. That The book club was really a listening club for me. The boys did far more talking than I did. And the young man who wrote the forward to that book, I mean, really catalyzed something for me. I'll never forget the day we were in the book club, we were talking about how men treat women in today's society. And, 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 and a lot of the work I did was what I learned about my own emotional intelligence in the workplace and all those things. And I wanted those boys to have that. So we would read stories and we could, t I told the boys, you could talk about anything you want, anything, money, sex, drugs, rock and roll, how you hate your teachers, but you had to read a story about it first. And let's unpack. And I just listened. The guy who wrote the for that book, I'll never forget the day we were taught, somehow the conversations got about who the boys' enemies and allies were and the discussion came to mothers, black mothers. And guys, let me tell you something. You ain't had a mother till you had a black mother. <laughs> I'm just, there's something about black moms and I get, there's a whole, I, there's a ton of theory and psychologists to go with it in terms of the reality. But this young man, he was a star football player, went on to a full football scholarship. He'd beat you up any day of the week, stood in front of that group of men, and when they started talking about mothers, that young man stood up and defended his mother with tears in his eyes, and it shut the room down. And I listened, and he spoke, and, and he unpacked it. And none of those boys had ever heard him talk about his mother like that. And it changed everything. And it came just from listening. So listening really is a key we used in the book club. And I was the biggest listener. Um, and I'll tell you a little secret too, though. I, I've got four daughters. And I, I felt like, you know, if I wanted my daughters to find a good husband, I'd probably better go out there and try and make a good husband for her, which is one of the reasons why I got involved with young men, because I had young daughters. And I, and I was dismayed by what I saw in terms of the the equality across the board of young men. And rather than just stay on the sidelines and complain about it, I said, let me get in the game and let me help do something about it. I started thinking about other dads who's, who, who would have the same reality with their daughters. Where are they going to find a young, young man who still cares about, you know, good manners and, and things like that? And that young man in front of that book, you ought to see him with his girlfriend. I've never seen a young man carry such respect for a young lady as that young man wrote that for. And it, it just blesses my socks off. So listening is really the key for the culture. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to keep going in, in this direction, uh, especially with, with everything that we have, I mean, seen countless times throughout, but, but it's once again coming up as far as the racial discrimination and, and civil unrest and things like that. So before mm -hmm. we dive into any of that at all, um, I want to be quiet for a minute and just hear some of your, your perspective on some of the mm -hmm. things that's going on. And then, then I'm sure we can dive in a little bit deeper. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the discouraging and encouraging things for me about what's currently going on in our world 
uh, our society and even more acutely our city here in Charlotte is that there is obvious a great um, authentic expression of pain and frustration. And, and, and where that leads us to me can be either problematic or can be a great opportunity that the, the problems we solve best, we find them buried beneath pain and frustration, right? And so we're seeing that, right? We're seeing very clearly a great deal of pain and frustration. And, 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 and surely there is the clear moral dilemma, the justice issues um, and, and, and the like. And what I say about what's going on in our city, if we think, and, and, and not just our city, but our nation, if we, if we give ourselves permission to think that the problem to solve is to stop certain behaviors by certain individuals or people groups without simultaneously at the same time help restore and recreate, and, and as I talk about, repair a brokenness inside of people, then we're going to I, I don't think we'll full, we'll do, we're just going to push it further down the road. It'll just be until we find the next type of infraction that offends people and we'll be right back where we started. So the opportunity that I see is while we've got all of these people who are showing their rage and their frustration and their pain, and I know them, they're my family, they're my friends, they're my church members, right? Is that as we listen, we listen non-judgmentally, and that's hard to do. I'm be honest. I know it's hard for me to even listen to my wife without being judgmental, and I love her with everything in me. And I know the conversation tension she and I have when it comes to disagreements or or, or issues of right and wrong. And so you extrapolate that out to a community where people don't have the the invested sense of deep love and care and now you're trying to solve the same type of realities, well, it's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna take a lot of suspending of judgment that when somebody says, this hurt me, you say, we have to own that. And there's no, there's no fear. There should be no fear in allowing a person to say, well, I think I've been mistreated because my ancestors were mistreated. Well, there's no need to push back against that. That's not an indictment. We are now on, on take three, I believe, because we had the, the laptop restart and then we had the phone die. And so now we are on step three here with Colin. Um, Colin, I want to follow up with what we were just talking about, which will not have the big gap once we actually put this out there. I, I can edit that out. Um, what are some of the things that, that can be done for our society to help move forward in a healthier direction regarding race? Yeah, it, I think what I was saying last is if we could get to a place of non-judgmental conversations and listening yep. and, 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 and accept that that will be hard work, right? For those of us who are well enough to, to dive into this space, uh, to accept that it will be hard work. Listening is hard, uh, but listening is absolutely necessary. And, and I would say uh, that, that listening not with an idea that you need to have the answer, not, not listening with the idea that you need to come up with a solution for those who are decrying the injustices, but that you listen with 
empathy and you listen with compassion as if it were your own families and children who were in the same dilemma. I think that's a, the, a first step. We've got to get us in the room together where we can have that kind of non-judgment. You know, um, having the kind of conversations that allow for listening as well as communicating clearly um, ideas and mindsets. And I think we're, we are at a place, I think what we're realizing on both sides is we're at a place where we need some new, newer and bigger ideas. I think on both sides, what we're realizing is that what we have tried and nothing wrong with the effort. I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of failure. I just, I, I embrace it. Uh, but I think we're in a space where newer, bigger ideas, we feel that we need to bring those to the table. And so as, as important as listening is, I believe it's also important to, to speak well enough so that we're communicating clear ideas, right? Clearer, more thoughtful ideas. And that's hard because right now, I think we're still in the throes of the sort of the immediate response to what we see. But if, if, if history gives us anything, history lets us know that there's time. There's going to come a time when we're going to be able to kind of turn and, and, and pivot and detour, if we have to detour, whatever that is. And when we do that, when we go down those paths, for me, it's really important that as I think about myself, if I'm having a conversation, you know, I take on the, the sort of the burden to, to be thoughtful in the conversation and to think about what my friends and colleagues might be emoting as I'm speaking. I'm, you know, for me personally, I'm just not interested in getting a rise out of people because my own history tells me that that doesn't really solve things. It, in the moment, it might give a catharsis and very mm -hmm. temporary, but we are, again, history tells us there's sort of a settling of emotion. And then there comes this time when we want to talk and listen. And talking is so important. And I think as people talk about these conversations, I, what I see that gets missed a lot is that people don't talk about themselves and what's happening for them. It's always this reference to somebody else, another situation, another. And, and I found out the only thing I'm really an expert on is me. And I'm still not an expert on that. I'm still figuring me out. But I do a better job when I'm talking, using I statements, talking about me, what Colin's experience, what Colin's going through, how Colin's saying, what's this doing to me, not what, what that person did, or what that person said, or how that person responded. Because I can't control that. None of us can. The, the piece of, of getting a rise and, and how that doesn't last, we've, we've seen that, right? Countless times of uh, something happening, people getting their emotions and, and their anger up, yeah. and whether it's then leading to things like protests or, or conversations on social media or whatever it is, and then it begins to fade again. And then that cycle continues. And, and it feels right. a little bit different um, over these these last few weeks for sure but you're still even seeing it again now it's it's been a few weeks since uh since everything began to uh get louder as far as people expressing themselves and it's it's starting to fade again and and i think you're hitting it nail on the head of we need to have those actual conversations and talk about what's going on in our lives because that's the stuff that's going to last that's the stuff that's going to continue moving forward not the immediacy of of emotion spiking 
But I, I'll give you a perfect example if I may. Do I have time to give you an example? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so, and I could give you tons, but this one just seems appropriate as we're talking about. It. I got a, I got an urgent text last week from a good friend of mine, who's a, who's of a different hue or color. I'll, I'll put it that way. He's not a black man, <laughs> and he, he reached out to me and said, Colin, I, I wonder if you could help me. And he told me of a very real personal situation that was going on with he and his wife, where his wife, as a result of of the hysteria that hit has hit our community is now having to think about a critical decision of moving her family out of the city. And, and I'll be honest, I had, a, I had a decision to make in that moment because I know for a fact that I have a couple of options. I can either oblige my friend and say, you know what, and give him my best thought and give him my most earnest, honest consideration or I could cheapen the conversation and only give him my, my own personal sentiment and, and rise, you know, well, how could you be thinking about her when you, and I, for a moment I realized, wait a minute, this is a friend who called me mm-hmm. and asked me if I could help him. And maybe it's, maybe it's a fault I have, Brother Gary, that when my friends call me, I answer the call, mm-hmm. I respond. <laughs> and, I, and I don't respond with me, Right. The thing that makes it friendship is that they trust that I'm going to think about them in my response. I'm going to give them what what a consideration that says, you know, I heard you. I heard you say your wife is hurting. I heard you say you're asking me for help. And again, I'm telling you, this is not this is where it gets hard, because if if I'm of the the kind that needs sort of retribution and I know that feeling, I've been there. But I think a higher order thinking says, you know what, let me slow this down. Let me back this up. There's no cause for me to inflict additional chaos in the, in the midst of all of this when maybe I can't help. And, and here's the beauty of it. I said to my friend, I said, you know what, I know a guy. He said, and I said, I know a guy. I said, and he's a good friend of mine. I said, let me reach out to him. I reached out to my friend, the secretary actually, he wasn't in his office because it's COVID. And he called me back immediately because I told her, his secretary, I said, tell him it's urgent. And he called me back, he says, Colin, he says, it's urgent, what is it, what is it? And I said, man, I got a friend who's got a dilemma. He's going through it, I think you could help him. And he, I told him the scenario and he said, would you please have his wife call me, I can help him. And so, and this is a friend of a different hue. And, and in that moment, realizing that I took, you know, I could take, one or two paths. And I guess I always default and things like that to my honest best self, even though I may be feeling some of the pain and the residue and my honest self in that moment is I'm gonna help my friend. I don't care what, the world could be burning down going straight to hell. I'm gonna help my friends and I'm not going, and, and, and I feel I'm blessed because I have all kinds of friends, friends who've helped me, friends who have, who, who've taken my call. And I surely don't want that to stop now. So that's kind of what I mean by conversation that I took the time to listen to him and his situation and respond to that when I could have easily, easily. And I heard the voices in my head, well, you should remind him that, you know, this is kind of tit for tat. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. Uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll roll the dice on that any day of the week. We could, if we could have conversations, even in the midst of chaos, where we, we take responsibility to not only listen well, 
but to speak well. I think that's really important. I think you do a really good job of both of those things, Colin. And I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm, I really believe that. It's one of the reasons I, I deeply care about you. Um, and, um, you know, so I'm going to move that into the next question, which is, I know a lot of guys, including myself, who are not black, that have friends like you, friends that are Latino, friends that are Asian, friends that are black, and various nationalities, as we experienced at Steel Creek. We had 50 nations represented there. That was what I, I thought was so beautiful about it. Yeah. But we feel, and I'm gonna say I feel, but I speak for others like that, that have also told me that they feel the same way, and that is we, we want to do something, but we don't know what to do, you know, because I wasn't, I was born white. I was born white in America. Now, I've got ancestors that fled being burned at the stake for religious persecution. I didn't come from a family of wealth or anything like that. I grew up in a tough little railroad town. And, and it, it was a pretty diverse little town. But, um, but still, I'm white. And, you know, there's this sense of like, what? what can we do? So I would love to get your perspective to me as a, a white friend of yours. What can we do that actually makes a difference versus just spouting rhetoric? I, I'll say it this way, Gary. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, please, I, you, I don't have to say this. You know me. I don't know everything. God knows I don't. Um, and I, I, though I try and I'm, I'm in the community and, I, and I'm driven, I'm a problem solver. I'm always trying to solve issues and problems. And I would say this, please, to all my white brothers, please keep taking me to lunch. And I mean that sincerely. Don't get paralyzed by fear. And maybe there might be some guys you might be scared to call to lunch. You can call them. And I'm going. I'm taking the meeting. I'm going to have a good meal. I'm 7 o'clock in the morning, I'll be with some friends of mine. And we'll be talking and I'll be doing as much listening as I am talking, trust me. Uh, but please don't stop the relationship, right? And, and as weird and as hard as that may be, please don't stop relating to those where you have a relationship. Keep sowing into those relationships in the very way that you have. And don't, and, and here's, and, and in that, you know, sometimes it's not what you do, it's what you don't do. Don't take on the savior mentality. Mm -hmm. don't don't assume the superman theory you don't have to come save the day you don't you don't have to come bail everybody out you don't um and i think maybe that sometimes some of the guys i talk that's their struggle because like me they come and i have to deal with it too we don't always have to save the day just be here mm. let's just keep going to lunch man let's keep mm. having a cup of coffee you know take me to top golf when they open up because i need to get my swing back on <laughs> And, and here's the thing, Gary, let us be seen in the community together, laughing, mm -hmm. slapping each other in the, well, COVID, we can't slap, but <laughs> you virtual, must high, slap. <laughs> virtual high fives, you know, we have got to, we've got to let the world see what it looks like for courageous men, how they behave in the times of crisis. 
and we don't run and hide. We don't stick our head in the sand. And even when we don't know, we're still together saying together, you and I, we don't know, man. And let's just, we might together, we might catalyze a thought, man, there it is. That's what we could do. But I need you, you need me. We're not here to save each other. Mm -hmm. We're here to relate to each other eye to eye. And that, and that way, I do believe we're equal. I believe there's some ways we aren't equal, and I'm okay with that. But in the, the way that we are equal is that in the tyranny of the moment, we both get confused. We both, we both, we try and struggle with, and that's where I think we need each other the most. You know, um, that reminds me, I mean, you and I had a conversation right after things were erupting, and I was silent for four days about all of that stuff because I was just trying to process it and I really wasn't paying attention on Facebook because there were hand grenades going lot, you know, being lofted back and forth that were just destroying people. Bitterness destroys and defiles many. But the conversation that you and I had, you know, I'm like, hey, what are we, what are you doing? What are you seeing? What am I seeing? And my takeaway was very much like what you just said. It it's like it's a one-on-one -on -one thing because this thing is way bigger. But if we look again at, all right, so how did, how did the most radical, non-racist, um, non-gender bigot behave, and, and we'll call him out, his name is Jesus, right? <laughs> but, like, how did he behave? Whether you accept him as Messiah or not, just look at the historical evidence. He, he gave dignity to women who were not even regarded as, um, you know, even in the same breath as men, period. He lifted up Samaritans who were considered as dogs in their society. So um, talk about massive racial bias. And they were living under an oppressive Roman regime and occupying force that was extremely brutal. How did he do it? I mean, he, he had one-on-one -on -one conversations. He had, actually was willing to even touch worse than COVID lepers and gave dignity to women that had even sorted past, and yet he called a spade a spade. But he had very personal relationships, and I think – if you just said, hey, that's a, a dude I would love to emulate, again, whether you accept him as Messiah or not, just look at the historical record of how he behaved. It's pretty transformative in what you've talked about. I mean, look at what you've done with the book club. Okay, so at the time of the writing of your book, you had 125 men that you had mentored. Now it's 350. Right. <laughs> uh <-huh. Yep. laughs> What's the ripple effect of that? I mean, yeah, it started with one relationship. And it started in crisis. It started with tragedy. I don't, I don't know if I told you guys that um, the whole instigation of the book club came as a result of a young black girl who was killed by her boyfriend, a young black man, at a local high school. And that happened in March of 2009. In August of 2009, I got a call from the principal who said, I heard you speak at another school. Would you please come share that with my boys? And she put 400 young men in an auditorium. And she says, I'm locking the, well, she didn't lock the door. She says, I'm closing <laughs> the door. 
There won't be any teachers. There won't be any. She says, we trust you, Mr. Pinckney. Would you please speak honestly to our boys? They need to hear the truth. And I put together my best presentation and I did it. And the next day she called back. She says, Mr. Pinckney, you got to come back. She says, first time ever happened. The boys came back to us and said, can we talk to him again? Wow. And that was, the, and that was on the heels of a murder of a black young man murdering a black young girl, a young man who's still in prison to this day. And there were other boys like him who began to act out. And the school was concerned that over the summer, through the summer, they had seen it. And they thought, school, as soon as school year comes, they're going to have a situation. So believe it or not, they brought me in to create peace. I didn't know that. They came in. They, wow. they, and, and, and so when you talk about the numbers, and I, and I need to say this sadly, because last year, unfortunately, the principals changed and the new principal had decided he wanted to wait to see if we would do anything. We had about 70 boys waiting in line on a waiting list who self-referred. They said, I want to be in that book club. We've been watching this for 10 years at school and the boys were lined up. The girls got jealous and they started a girls book club and they had me come speak to the girls over the years. And I, as we just kept turning the clock every school year, a whole new set of 35 young men in the book club, mentoring, wow. just sitting with them. And I did more listening than I did talking. And, you know, sadly, and we even launched one last year in, in Dallas, Texas. They got a call from a teacher there and said, can you come to a book club in our school? And I flew across country and did a book club and started wow. a book club. And and so you talk about the one-on-one, -on -one, the multiplication effect, the effect that, that I, I do believe this, not because it's me, but it's a principle that where you sow good seed, you will reap good seeds. And, and those young men have been, have, have been a blessing to me to see them living their lives. And today, even to this day, the boys who got college degrees and master's degrees and they're married and they're in their careers, they're pastoring churches, They've got their own companies. They're making music. And these were boys who the school said were worried about these. And they're not worried about them anymore. <laughs> and I, and I, they're friends on Facebook. And, and they find me. If I lose them, they find me. Mr. Payton, I haven't seen you in a couple of years. I'm okay. I'm in Atlanta now. And they, they let me know how they're doing. Because I always check in with the boys. Um, and I, asked, I always ask the boys two questions. I, I learned a lot of things in the book club that were, I believe, really principle-centered, but it's the idea of systems, right? We don't always think about systems in relationships, particularly in mentoring, but there are systems, and I learned this with the boys, and I asked them two questions, and it's my system. How's life treating you, and how are you treating life? And I just listen, and they start talking. And <laughs> so I, wait till they, I wait till they ask me questions before I give them advice. If they don't ask questions, I don't give them advice. I just cheer them on. Is the book club still going? You oh, we, well, we got suspended last year. And then, and then COVID came. And we, so it's, um, it's on halt. But I still have a relationship with many of the boys. And when they put it on halt, they had about 70 boys who had requested to be in the book club. Yeah. Why did it get suspended? Leadership change. Unfortunately, it's like, you know, with anything, right? You change the leaders and every leader wants to make their mark their way. And I was clearly under the, um, 
leadership of the previous principal who made all the difference in the world because she gave me sort of a carte blanche to go in there and spend time with those boys um, and, and, and be with them as though they were my own kids. Wow. And she trusted that. And, 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 and she would, and, and boys who had been diagnosed and with mental issues and boys who were in trouble with in school and boys who were in trouble with the police. I mean, I had all the stuff they didn't tell me till after the fact, by the way, too. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, Gary, I tell you that I tried to quit every year for the first three years. I tried to go to Miss Bowden. I couldn't ask Miss Bowden, you know what? I'm just, just so busy, right? And, and she said, Mr. Pinckney, she said, I'm not hearing that. These boys are dependent on you. I'd be darn it. And I'd have to go back. And it became, and that's what the book came out of. The, the, after that, the boy said, Mr. Pinckney, we want to read, we want you to write a book so we can read it. And that, that's why I wrote oh, the book, so they, so they could read it. That's why I wrote Blueprints. I wanted them to have a legacy of their own work. I mean, that's their, that's their legacy. The, the, the Blueprints book is not about me. It's about those boys, right. those young men who grew up in the book club, uh, who leaned into the book club um, for a, a sacred space during the middle of the school day to unpack some real things going on in life. And as a result of that, I gave them what they asked for. They asked for a book, I gave it to them. So I, I want to build off of that. The, what you said was you try not to give advice until or unless they're asking the question, right? If they're bringing it up to you, you're happy to share, but you want to be the one listening. You don't want to just be giving on things unsolicited basically. Yeah. So with, with the stuff that we've just been talking about of things that's going on today in our society and also you're, it's pretty established. You're a very well-respected leader in the community, right? So you lead, uh, by example, but also through through talking, through writing, through things like the book club. So when these young men that were in the book club, when they're reaching out to you during this time, what what are you saying to them? What do those conversations look like uh, regarding uh, everything that's going on in our society today? Um, some of it, I will say, is a sacred trust because you know they. One of the things we had is for the book club rules was that that old Vegas what goes on in here stays in here. I had to give them that trust. Um, but in general, it is, it's, I, I give them more encouragement, right? And I sit with them. One of the things that was big in the book club was helping the boys understand emotional intelligence. And that is being, being able to be with people and enter into that person's world in a way that they feel valued and they recognize um, that you are on their side, right? And that doesn't mean you necessarily agree, but it means you're on their side. And if there's a difference of ideas and thoughts, I don't, I don't bash it in such a way that I demean you. I, I lift up your intellect. I lift up, I, I champion the idea that, man, you, that's a great thought. I never thought of that before. I, I, here's a great example. Last year, the book, the last year before they shut down the book club, there was another school shooting. And one of the time we read the whole story of how the shooting happened and, and all the different angles. I went around the room and I gave, I did a little contest and I gave, I gave, a, um, uh, I had another colleague who come with me that day and I said, I want you to pick the best idea. I want guys to give me all your ideas on how we protect in, a, in an active shooter drill. I know you guys have done them, but what have we not thought of? And I said, guys, give me your ideas. And, and I always love that because I don't tell them what works and what doesn't. And so we went around the room and one boy said, one young man said, we should make all of our desks bulletproof. 
Because if we make the desk bulletproof, as soon as they start shooting, we all put our desk down, we make a shield, and we sit behind our desk. And I said, and the, and the other boys chided, and like, man, that's dumb. And I said, guys, here's what's going to happen. One day, somebody's going to make a bulletproof desk, and they're going to make a lot of money. I'd like for it to be this guy right here. And, and so that's, and that's the world that these boys live in, that they come up with ideas and they have thoughts and people shoot them down. Their peers shoot them down. Their parents shoot them down. Their friends shoot them down. Their teachers shoot them down. But I listen. I said, guys, that's a great idea. I never would have thought of it. And he came to me next week. He had a diagram drawn up and everything. And I took him to a business room. I said, I don't know if this worked, but this guy's got an idea. And so, you know, I encourage them. What I say to them is I say, guys, don't give up. Don't you quit. And what we talked about in the book club, the four R's, and, and one of the, the, the represent is one of the R's of the book club. And that means you will finish what you start. So if you started down this path, you got to finish it, guys. So if you start down the path of getting a job and the boss is getting on your nerves and you don't like them, guys, remember the respect. If you read the book here, it's in the back of the book. And we finish, first we finish high school. Then after that, we finish everything we start. We will be known by the things we finish, not just by what we start. Because anybody can start an idea. We know that most businesses fail that start, but the idea is finished. So I encourage them. If they're struggling, I, I just talk to them about finishing. I give them the same advice. I, one of the things I, um, I've learned from a, a gentleman who mentored me when I was in college, uh, and I was, I was singing the blues, man. I had every reason to curse um, my family, my friends, NC State University, McDonald's where I was working. I just wasn't in a good place. Um, didn't have a car. I was walking to work and walking to school, and it was just life was tough. And I remember I got in this guy and I just cried the blues and I just told him and I wanted him to tell me, you're right. And man, it's not fair. And you just, that's what I wanted to hear. And he, he looked me in the eye. He said, listen, Colin, he says, you're 18. I was 19. He says, you're 19 years old now. That means you're a man. You need to make man decisions. And that was it. And I told that same, the second year of the book club, it's in the book. I told that same truth a young man who was about to commit a crime, a major crime, who was really in a bad place. And Ms. Bozeman called me and she says, hey, Colin, she says, Darius wants to talk to you. He won't talk to anybody else. He hadn't been to school in a week, um, but he'll talk to you. He says, if you call him, he'll talk. And I call a kid who had been sleeping out in the back of a Walmart for a week because things at home weren't well, and he was really in a bad way. Good looking, smart kid, quit the football team. It just His life was upside down. And, you know, Darius, I got on the phone, and I remember, I didn't know what to do, Gary. I didn't know what to tell this kid. I mean, I'd never dealt with that. Mm. And all I could think of was what the advice I got from my mentor many years ago when I was at NC State. And I said to him, I said, Darius, man, I hear what you're saying. I hear everything you're saying. I said, but here's, here's the truth, Darius. You're over 18. You're a man now. You got to make a man decision. The next year, a year and a half later, I'm going to the school to do my book club. It's a Tuesday morning. Down the hall, there stands Miss Bozeman and Miss Same Red, and they're standing outside my book club. And I'm thinking, okay, the rules are being broken because they promised me no women would ever enter that room because they wanted the boys to have that. 
um, and they're standing there and they're crying. I can see it, and I'm like, oh my god, his, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm going to quit this year. This is the year I quit. <laughs> and I get to the door, and Miss Bozeman, she's just a bucket of tears. And Miss Bozeman is a general. That lady does not cry. I mean, she reminds me of the the principal that was in the movie Lean on Me with the baseball bat. Them kids respected her. She was standing there. And, and he, Gary, here's what I just thought of. This is so amazing. I didn't even realize it just now as I said this. So she said, go in the room, Mr. Pinkney, don't say anything. I go in the room, our boys, the boys are sitting in a circle, and in the middle, at the front of the circle, sitting in my chair, is Darius. He's dressed out in full Marine dress blues. Gary, you know my oldest son, Isaac's a Marine. So this, this is powerful to me. Because at that time, my son wasn't even in high school. Mm. Wow. This kid's sitting there in a Marine uniform, and I stood and I watched in amazement. And he's, and he's, and he's getting on them boys. Said, you guys need to get your act together. Stuff that I would never do. I would never tell him that because I was a mentor. I wasn't a drill sergeant. Get your act together. Quit mistreating these girls. Go to class. Do what you're supposed to do. That, and he's hitting it. And then he realized I'm in the room, and he stops, and he, and he comes, and he stands up. And he walks over to me at that door and he says, <laughs> he said, Mr. Pinkney, a year ago, you told me that I have to make man decisions. And I made a decision that I would rather die for everyone in here than kill a man. Mm. And, you know, what do you do with that, Gary? I don't, I was just there to serve. I was just there to help. And I didn't know that that's what would happen. And every year, Ms. Bozeman reminds me where he's at. He's over in Okinawa. The kid's a proud Marine. A kid who was probably about to commit a crime that would have put him in jail. And now he's serving this nation. And in his mind, he is serving his friends and his family. I don't know what else more you could ask for in life than to see that kind of thing happen. So, and that's why, that's what gives me hope today still. Because I've seen it happen. I don't, I don't have to live in the mirage that we could try this, we could try that. And, and, and I, I've seen this happen. I've seen young men turn their lives around and get on the right path and not live out the stereotypical line that the world says about them. And that's even hard now, Gary, because in the midst of what's going on with young black boys and black men in this country, you know, the idea that they're devalued, I know that they are in their hearts who they are, they see themselves so different. And they just want the world to see and respect them for who they see themselves to be. And so it's hard in a time like this when there's so many voices um, literally yelling, yelling for this sort of um, value. And I know it's already there. They, every young black boy I've ever mentored intrinsically knew that he was worth what he was worth and so that's I, I get hope still even in the midst of this and I'm a little different than some people some people are, you know you get more of a sense of dread and people are worried and I'm just I'm hopeful I'm hopeful so. you know um this is just another reason why I I think so highly of you and I actually I genuinely love you <laughs> and I'm gonna say that but it's true <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but think about it. If if we if everybody 
at the age of 18 and beyond, men or women that had, and life is difficult, and it's more difficult for some than others. And we all have moments that are really difficult. I think, I don't know anybody that has not had a moment that's very difficult. Again, different circumstances. But if we, as men and women, treated each decision like men and women, and we, we gave one another enough respect to listen on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And I'm not saying don't ignore legislation, but if we think legislation is going to change individual parts and, and um, mutual respect, we are in for a, a massive you know, slap up alongside the face, you know, because that, it just doesn't work. I mean, it, it just has not worked. Yeah. Um, you can, at best, you may get capitulation. Um, but what you've talked about is extremely transformative, extremely transformative. And, um, and the other thing that I have heard, you know, repeatedly, not just in this recording session and the first one <laughs> with your recording from Nashville, but, yeah. but just in, in your heart, which is um, you, you don't go to add more burdens to people in guilt and in shame. It's easy to do that. You don't do it, but you do bring hope and think about the exponential power of hope and what that means. Um, one other thing before we kind of finish up, you talked about the four R's. Yeah. Can you just recite those one more time? Yes. Um, and of course, the first one is read. <laughs> you know, I read, um, res respect, reciprocate, reciprocate, and represent. And each of those has a full meaning to them. Read uh, to gain the information we need. Respect others by always being willing to listen first and talk second. Um, reciprocate means that if I give you that respect of listening to you, then you will listen to me. And then represent means that you will finish first high school and then everything you start, you will finish. Um, and, you know, it's funny because the, the first couple of years when we got this, when I did the um, the read thing, when it, I realized I need a system if I want to keep doing this. Um, we were at a, we, we, we went to this, they invited me and all the boys to be a part of this big symposium uptown at this Harvey Gantt Museum and they were putting us on display and, and showing, and I did this slide for, for the group, but it was about the boys and the slide says, boys, they had the don't sign, read, right? And I could, you know, there was a collective gasp. That, this is a book club guy <laughs> with the boys and the boys defended it and said, you know what? He's right. We don't, we don't read and we got to change that. And so rather than it wasn't intended to be negative, it was, it was intended to be informative. Boys don't read. And, and there's a good friend of mine who always says, those who don't read are no better off than those who won't read. Mm. So the boys had gained their own value for reading by not seeing that as a slap or a dig, but boys don't read. And that's, that's what we get to solve. That's what we get to live up to. And they did, and they, and they did it. I mean, I mean, and one of my commitments that I wanna 
I didn't finish, but um, there were two really. It was one, I wanted every boy to have a library in his room, like I've got back here. Mm. I said, get your dorm room, put a bookshelf in it. Everything you can read, read it. But it was that they would have a library and they would have a bookshelf. And um, mm. so that's still yet to be fully realized. Um, but I think it's a pretty good, pretty good goal. I get boys to read. Love it. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. We, uh, I know we, we had a pretty wide ranging, wide variety uh, conversation here. I really appreciate how much you shared with us. Um, you guys got to. Me. Sorry about that. No, no, we made it work, so we're good. Um, before we sign off, uh, where can we send people? People that want to reach out to you, people that want to read more about you, things like that. Yeah, um, I'm on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I don't know the handle. Sorry. That's fine. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Um, sadly, my LinkedIn was hacked. <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and my I have a personal email, which is just my name, and, uh, and anybody can have it. It's Colin at ColinPinkney.com. Okay. You can send me a request if you want to copy my book. Send it to me. I might ask you for a few dollars. Not a lot, but if you can't afford it, that's no problem. I love giving that book away because I Again, I want it in the hands, especially of young men. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. So this was a tremendous couple of conversations. Thank you all for, for being ingenious enough to think of this format and including me in it. I'm, it means a lot. I learn when I'm, when I'm speaking to men like you, I'm learning. Uh, so I'm so thankful for that and, and appreciate the work you're doing. And God bless you. Thank you. God bless you too. Thank you, Colin. Sir, you too. You are anything but typical, and oh. you are a ripple maker. <laughs> you made me believe that, Gary, and that's half the battle. Thank you so much. <laughs> right on.